My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name is Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. We have an unusual episode today, don't we, Eric? This is not one of our normal ones. Yeah, no, this is going to be the the first of our in-depth looks at uh, the world of Stephen King from somebody who got to be the face of many of his characters, actually. Our guest today will certainly be familiar to the KingCast faithful. You may have seen him on the classic 90s sitcom Wings, on Broadway in The Producers, or in 1992's Single White Female, but our listeners have definitely seen him in a number of Stephen King adaptations, including the Nightmares and Dreamscapes episode based on, you know, they got a hell of a band, uh, the Outer Limits episode based on the revelations of Becca Paulson, and in two different Mick Garris adaptations, one for The Shining and one for Desperation. Most recently, he gained notice for his excellent reading of the It audiobook. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Stephen Weber. Hello, everybody. Please sit down. Yeah. How <laughs> yeah, are they you, were uh, standing. How did you know that? That's really weird. How I are you holding up? It. <laughs> <laughs> How yeah. am I holding up? I, I'm holding up. Yes. You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm doing what most everybody else is doing. Um, I'm uh, I'm observing protocols. I'm wearing my mask. I'm washing my hands, but I'm also Hopeful, uh, even though uh, without getting too deeply into things, uh, I think a lot of this could have been avoided or mitigated with a <laughs> yes. uh, with better leadership. But, but whatever, um, keeping my wits about me, my family's well, and uh, uh, I live in a part of California where there's a relatively decent amount of room to roam. So um, I feel very fortunate that I'm not housebound. You know, are you feeling antsy about work? Oh yeah, very. Like, are I you mean, feeling antsy about like not being in production on anything? Yes. Uh, the the weird thing is that a working actor's life is kind of perfect <laughs> for uh, enduring long spells of inactivity and unemployment, and, um, <laughs> and really, you know, and and not not to be li- too light about it. You know, I've been going through a version of this all my career, as most actors do. You know, there's feast and famine. Uh, this is I'm usually long. I know the industry will come back. I hope not too terribly impacted in terms of um, employing all the the people involved in production, not just the people who you see, uh, but all the ancillary services uh, that's, that are so affected by shutting everything down. I mean, and what most people yeah. forget is that even when they demonize Hollywood for whatever reason and calling for boycotts or whatever. Uh, they they are also cutting off the employment again of all the the services that you don't see, which keep the enormous entertainment industry afloat. So that's right. a long winded answer to say, yeah, <laughs> I'm antsy. You know, I want to get back to work. You said it's been feast and famine for you, but I was looking at your Wikipedia page today, and you, your list of credits is insane. Like this is you you've been working your ass off since 1984. Um, well. I- yeah, look, I feel very fortunate. Um, um, I, I can finally say I'm a professional actor, and I have the the uh, the IMDb credits to prove it. But you know, for the most part, between each of those credits is a period of time that uh, 
kind of stretches from weeks to months and months. Uh, yeah. And uh, and that's the thing again that people don't see. You know, it's uh, the reality is that there's lots of space and downtime between jobs. But I'm appreciative. We're we're here today to talk to you about uh, your work in uh, the world of Stephen King on film or television, but. There is one uh, specific performance of yours that is not King-related that I do want to recognize, and that's your work in uh, an episode of Party Down, wherein ah. you played a <laughs> Russian gangster who, uh, yeah, yeah, is he yeah. Russian? He's Russian, right? Yeah. Hey, I um, think he's just sort of generally Slavic. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I chose an accent that was based on a friend of mine who um, was Croatian. And so I just started, to, you know, talking like uh, like she's the talk, and uh, and and <laughs> however people perceive it. But it was just that was really one of my favorite things that I've ever done. And everybody on that show was so hilarious and accomplished. It's an amazing show, and it's funny because that char- the character you played has a move where he like puts his hands down his pants and then rubs his fa- hand on someone's face. And uh, I went to military school with a guy who used to do that, touch his balls that's, and then put it. And uh, really he used to, oh, it was awful. You know, we're, we're, I didn't, I didn't rub the guy's face. I just held my fingers up for him to smell. And okay. He, and, well, and you know, yes, give me yes, some credit. fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, uh, you were, you He's were walking the ball smell toward his yeah. face, but I used to know a guy that would do that. And then one day I saw him do it to the wrong guy. I just get full on punched in the face. And it was uh, one of the greatest things I've ever seen. Uh, but that's anyhow, really a heartwarming story. I, yeah. Really beautiful. Thanks. Yeah. Well, those, you yeah. know, that's the, we want to engender that sort of warm feeling yeah. on this show. I yeah. This is a family show. I won't be eating uh, at the buffet with you. <laughs> oh, well, it wasn't me. You know, I wasn't touching my balls and putting my fingers sure. on anyone. Sure, you weren't. I don't, hey, wait, hold on think... a second. I have to tell. I have to tell um, Alexa to be quiet. Alexa, stop playing. Sometimes she comes on and tries to kind of butt in. Well, what's that about? Sometimes she'll say, "Here, I'm going to play a, a, a channel for you. <laughs> I think you'll like." I'm got always those, listening. I've got one of those things in my living room, and sometimes I'll hear it talking to itself while I'm in my office, and there's no one else home. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck is that? Like, what yeah, is it that doing? Is, that's a Stephen King scenario. I mean, he's probably, de- well, he did it, uh, versions of it, like pristine. You know, I mean, there are right. things that come sure. to life. Yeah, trucks. Speaking yeah. of King, um, can you tell us about, uh, like, I assume you're a Stephen King fan for all the work that you've done in his world. Can you tell us how he, you sort of came to King in the first place? Was it through the movies or the books, or what's your origin story there? I, I am a King fan. And yet I've, I've, I've probably read way too few to, to qualify as a real diehard uh, kingophile, if that's the word. Um, I, I know him mostly through the projects that I've, that I've been fortunate enough to do. I, I, obviously, I was aware of him in the culture, and uh, mm-hmm. I was uh, a, a fan and still am of the Kubrick film. And of things like um, uh, the other, uh, one of the other great, adaptations that Mick Garris did the stand. I thought that was really mm-hmm. excellent, I gotta say, and contains for my money the best first half hour of a of a show. It was the most compelling, directorially speaking. Anyway, blah blah blah. So I came to him um immediately by auditioning and uh, getting the T V version of The Shining. And uh and that was really my first kind of deep dive into 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 King's work 
especially that book, which I read thoroughly and then kept um, by my side while we were doing the the movie. And in fact, Stephen King was around during the filming of the movie, so uh, I had no choice but to be heavily involved in all things King. <laughs> well, what's interesting is that, like, whatever you think of the the Kubrick film, some King fans love it, some King fans hate it, and think it's a terrible adaptation. You know, the Nicholson portrayal of that character is like so ingrained in our culture. Like, was did that put any extra pressure on you as an actor when you were when you were taking this role? Because obviously, your version of Jack Torrance is the more true to you know to the source material. I would love to to kind of get your feel on how you approached the, uh, that very complex character? Well, um, originally, and I guess this speaks to who I was and probably am to a certain extent, uh, what kind of an actor I was, I didn't, I probably didn't take Nicholson's performance into as much consideration as I should have. That said, I wasn't intimidated or particularly distracted by it. I'm not exactly sure why. It might be because I'm inherently shallow or whatever. But also, you know, that iconic character, apart from the name, was not portrayed in the script. You know, it was a, he was a, I mean, for a while anyway, um, a, a sober uh, a guy who was dealing with recovery and his family and writer's block and all these things. And those things were more playable to me than uh, trying to emulate or be distracted by uh, the very iconic Jack Nicholson performance. So, again, another long-winded answer. I have so much time on my hands. I, I don't speak to anybody that I'm just going to rattle rattle on. Oh, we yeah, got all yeah. the time in the world. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, you know, I don't know. But I mean, you weren't I, again, intimidated at all. Not. I wouldn't say intimidated. I I I think that I was uh, just more attuned to what was in the story, what was in the script and remembering or really learning that the shining isn't about monsters and a scary haunted hotel. It's about alcoholism. It's about isolation. Mm -hmm. It's about those monsters or those things that human beings turn into monsters in order to cope with them or avoid coping with them. And so it was that approach that was again, inherent in this, in this uh, adaptation, in Mick Garris's adaptation, and in fact, it was directly adapted by King himself, that kind of emphasized the more human and accessible aspects of the story. Uh, of course, Stephen King is known as the horror author, and uh, you know, uh, but really, what he is is he's writing about aspects of uh, human character, uh, many of which, or perhaps all of which, he himself has possessed and has been able to you know, express through his writing that that was so. So that's why I wasn't particularly intimidated by Nicholson or the Kubrick film. And, and, and look, uh, there's obviously a lot of differences uh, between the two films. Um, some quality wise, let's say, you know, Kubrick had a, an astronomical budget, and, you know, and, and Kubrick, while we had um, uh, really incredibly talented artists and craftspeople, working on our show, but it was a TV version. You know, uh, I'm not Jack Nicholson. No, I'm not. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and, and there's, you know, and there's obviously differences there, but, um, I think we set out to accomplish, uh, rather we accomplished what we set out to accomplish, which was to create a faithful adaptation of the book, 
uh, closer representations of the characters as he wrote them. And, and I think I think it was successful in the eyes of most people who not only enjoy Stephen King, but enjoy horror. You know, it's, it, I haven't seen the, the miniseries in ages. Um, I suspect it's dated in some ways, and certainly I would love to uh, go back and redo a bunch of moments just because I understand life more uh, than I did back then, especially aspects of frustration and addiction and loss and all those things that I was kind of approximating then, uh, having lived more life and have, having had encountered a lot more of those things since then, uh, I could give a better, more clear, more accurate kind of creative representation of those things. There might be an argument to be made, though, that, you know, playing it at that age and, you know, at that stage in your career, maybe you were you had you you weren't overthinking it, you know, and maybe going back and doing it now. Well, if I don't know how differently would you play it? Well, if there were an argument to be made, you'd probably be the only one making that argument, you know, but I I think (laughs) that, uh, you know, it's like it's like not to sound pretentious, but when you look at Romeo and Juliet, you know, those roles are written. Uh, as 13-year-olds or 14-year-olds, there's sure. no goddamn way anybody 13 or 14-year-old is going to be able to handle the complexities of those roles. So it may be a stretch, but similarly, you know, there, there was a, I, I could approach, again, those moments of deep distress that Jack Torrance was having in, in The Shining in a different way uh, because being a horror fan myself, um, you know, one of the things that, that brought Mick Garris and I together is that we're both horror nerds. And um, and so when I had to play things, you know, the equivalent of the Here's Johnny moments, of which there are several in the Shining, in the miniseries, I got carried away and wanted to play them evil or, you know, monstrously. And that was a mistake. You know, I mean, I, I should not have done that. I mean, there's one or two moments that come to mind. Um, where I had to deal with young Danny. <laughs> and uh, in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna crush this. I'm going to be like Lon Chaney Jr. in the Indestructible Man, you know, not even a big Lon Chaney Jr. movie, like a, a, a B movie from the 50s. It just, I'm going to do it like this. I shouldn't have um, because it, was, um, it wasn't true to, you know, all the things that I said the Shining miniseries was trying to be true about which was the kind of the reality the groundedness of the character so i would do those uh, moments differently i think did you ever cross paths with nicholson <laughs> like have you met uh, the guy i did not not so you'd notice um uh hiding outside his house no 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 uh you know when, it was funny like when i was younger i i guess yeah about that age and, and after i did the shining and i was still doing wings and um, my wife at the time and I had a bunch of show busy kind of friends who, uh, had parties. And once I was at a party and goddamn, there he was, there was, Jack, oh you know, and, 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 and I did sort of maneuver my way close enough to him. But one of my problems as an actor, even as a professional actor in this industry is that I'm. I would say I'm 12 to 30% more of a fan than I am as an actor. Uh, 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 than mm-hmm. as, meaning if I see a fellow actor and I'm a fan of theirs, I suddenly, you know, suborn myself. Like, <laughs> you know, I turn into like a, a little fanboy, And so I'm fucked, you know, and there's no way I can have kind of a, 
a, a, a relationship as peers or whatever. And instead, I end up saying something stupid. I've done that tons of times. Did it with Joe Pesci once. Like an asshole. Like I said something <laughs> stupid. And he just looked at me like, uh-huh, yeah, so long. Well, similarly. Wait, you said Joe Pesci. Well, I, I think I was at a dinner. And uh, there were some friends who knew him. And he stopped by. And I had had a couple of glasses of wine. And I don't know. I said something. Probably said something from Goodfellas, you know, like an idiot. Oh, no. no. It's so terrible. I get a bunch of friends who are actors. We talk about this all the time. You know, the the terror of our own (laughs) kind of fanboy idiocy. Anyway, so, so yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's Jack. And, and I don't know, I think he was moving to another room and, um, and he was making a joke as he was moving and he kind of looked at me while he was making it. So I was thrilled that I was, I at least fell within his, his range of vision. And he said, and he was saying, <laughs> I, I won't get into trouble for this because it's, it's so silly and it's a little druggy. He said something like, yeah, I always get a little hoarse after I do a lot of cocaine. And he said it with a smile and walked past me. Well, okay. And, and me and my wife at the time, we'd laughed and we were like, holy smokes, that was pretty insane. And then I feel like that night or and the reason why I saw him or the reason why I was at this party because there was some presentation like a, awards or something. And that night or the day after we were watching the awards and they introduced Jack Nicholson. And he got on stage and was really hoarse. <laughs> and I said, ah, okay. Hey. You know, so that was that's the only time I I you know and, and I can't imagine that he saw the shining or gave a shit, no. you know. So that was it. It's hard to imagine Jack sitting down and watching a, any T V miniseries. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I mean, can you? Like I can yeah. I, I hear he's a big fan of Lonesome Dove though, so Yeah. I'm a he likes the Lakers. fan of the Thornbirds. I love <laughs> <laughs> Richard James. Uh, you've seen the latest season of Girls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. I love uh, Lena. What's her name? I think she's. Uh, I, I tried calling her. She won't return my calls. And also, my voice is really hoarse. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, from the the production of that movie, like, what's your uh, or miniseries? I should say. Uh, what are your predominant memories of, of filming it and you know uh, I mean um, one of the cool things was that um, we shot it in Estes Park Colorado at the Stanley mm-hmm. Hotel which was the inspiration for The Shining uh, Stephen King right. and his wife Tabitha back in the day stayed there and he thought wow this will be interesting I don't know if he thought that especially but the idea and so um, uh, I actually stayed in that hotel while we shot so you could literally walk downstairs to the set. And then when you were done, walk back upstairs to your room. Um, that sounds amazing. That was, it was fun. Uh, the, the hotel is arguably actually haunted. Um, yeah. I didn't see anything per se, but I certainly um, psyched myself into uh, a state of fear several times. Uh, I, had, I switched rooms. Uh, from the one I was in, thinking that, mm, you know, just the configuration of it uh, was too suggestive of something scary. I thought that I would, you know, wake up in the middle of the night, look across the room to the old, probably, you know, the the 100-year-old 
settee and see some guy with a celluloid collar and a, you know, and a bolo tie staring at me or something. I just was like, ah, I got to get out of this room. And so, uh, but it was, and, and it was beautiful up there. Estes, Colorado was high in the mountains. It was gorgeous. And everybody was super and uh, nice. And, uh, you know, Stephen King was up there, Mick Garris and uh, Rebecca DeMornay. I mean, everybody was just great. You know, we, and uh, we were there for a long damn time doing it. Um, yeah. And uh, what, we were there through the changing of the seasons as well. What what was it like having King on hand? Uh, was that helpful to you to have not only the script but the novel, and then you had the originator for both? You know, at your at your disposal. You yeah. Um, uh, it, it did you know? I, I just have to imagine that like there was no question that you could have about the character that you didn't have an easy answer for. Well, that's exactly it. Uh, not only did he give the project itself incredible weight and credibility. But he was accessible, and I, I've told this several times um, in the past, but I, I love it, so I'll tell it again. Um, I had the book with me the whole time and was really combing through it and uh, getting into it. And at one point, uh, there's a passage that I remember was like a, a, just a tiny little kind of a triplet of lines. Um, and the lines were like, uh, Medoc, are you here? I'm sleepwalking again, my dear. The vines are moving under the rugs. And it, it came in this very lyric passage uh, that was dreamy and nightmarish and odd. And I was fixated on this, on these phrases. And I thought, what the hell is that? What, what is, oh, wait, there's a living author downstairs. I'm going to ask him. Ha ha, this will be fun. And, uh, <laughs> And, you know, and he was always around and he always had books under his arms and magazines. I mean, he's a voracious reader ingesting as much as possible. And I go to him. I see him. I Steve, I say, um, what does this mean? Medoc, are you here? I'm sleepwalking again, my dear. The vines are moving under the rugs. And I was just waiting for to hear this amazing backstory. And he kind of, you know, puts down, puts down the book he's reading and he looks at it and goes, ah, hmm. Medoc, are you here? Yeah, well, Medoc's a wine, so uh, uh, I was probably drinking at the time. Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, you hear I'm sleepwalking again, my dear. Yeah, man, when I was drinking that red wine, it just messed with my sleep. Terrible. Vines are moving under the rugs. Uh, I don't know. I probably just looked down at the pattern on the rug while I was uh, typing and there were vines on it. I just typed it. Okay, moving. <laughs> and, 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 and he moved on. And I was both enthralled and disappointed, you know, that, uh, wow, <laughs> he, he actually took the time. But I realized that, you know, a, a lot of <laughs> a lot of creativity is just, you know, just, you know, plucking low hanging fruit and uh, and us reading into it. Um, and so that that was that was, I guess, really the only time that I, I tried that. And the rest was just uh, on my own, on my own with Mick Garris's help. Shortly after you did this, you uh, you directed and starred in an episode of The Outer Limits based oh, on yeah. uh, the revelations of Becca Paulson. I was totally unaware of that until I started doing uh, prep for this show. So I've not seen it. I didn't. I, I've not even read the short story. I don't think this was a, a an entirely new discovery for me. Can you can you tell us about that? Yeah, I was actually in a. I feel like I was in a bookshop, maybe in Colorado, Denver, something might have been then, or might have been after that. And I found a um, 
a collection, an anthology of short stories, something called like I Shudder or I Shudder in Your Sleep or something like that. And it was a collection of stories and that story was in there. And I read it and it was a kind of a cool story. It was really about a woman who buys a, a picture frame that has Jesus in it. And Jesus starts talking to her and, uh, and controlling her in the, you know, evil ways. Um, and the opportunity came along for me to direct something at the time. I had ambitions to try that. And The Outer Limits, the reboot of The Outer Limits was, uh, was fairly successful and had gone several series. And by that time, I had, like I say, the opportunity to direct something. And I found this project. I found this story. And I wrote the script, the adaptation, and uh, was able to get, I think, Stephen King's permission to do it. And I did it. We had to make some changes. Um, the network at the time uh, was squeamish about us using Jesus Christ as a character, uh, <laughs> yeah. especially, especially as one that causes such uh, mayhem. Um, um, so we switched that around, and I uh, managed to get Catherine O'Hara and John Deal. And uh, great wow, Canadian shit. actors. Yeah, we shot it in um, in um, Vancouver. Bill Dow, who's a great English character guy, and, and I had a great time directing it. It's actually, I think, pretty good. It's a bit dated. It's uh, you know, it smacks of TV uh, in the uh, early '90s before it really started getting hip to itself. But it, it made a. It, 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 I thought it was pretty good. And there's a there's a sequence in it that's especially memorable. Because uh, the story is she accidentally shoots herself in the head uh, with a small caliber pistol, like a twenty-two, and the bullet doesn't kill her. In fact, it lodges almost almost benignly in a portion of her skull, and she kind of comes out of it uh, after having been um, unconscious, sees it in the uh, sees this bullet hole in her head, and she probes it using a um, an eyebrow pencil. It's not for the squeamish, and we had a great time with that. So anyway. I directed it and wrote it and played a small part in it. It was a great, it was a great time for me. It was really great. And they, That's they, awesome. I think it's worth a, worth a, worth looking for. I don't know how available it is. Yeah, now, now that you you discussed it, like I, I did come across the short story while doing research for our episode on the Tommy Knockers because I think he oh, yeah. rolled. He he rolled that like basic character and, and premise into one of the random people in yeah. uh, in, in the town in Tommy Knockers. Uh, but no, the, the, like listening to you describe that though, and that that was Catherine O'Hara playing that that lead, yeah. lead role. God, yeah, man, I got I got to seek that out. That sounds so awesome. It's what sweet. a legend. Oh, and, and she's you know she was so accessible, and I was a first time director, so you know in the same way I I become a fan when I meet you know famous people or people I admire. Similarly, when I was directing, I was so out of my mind with glee that she was you know, doing it, that working it, uh, that I was just, I was over the moon. And, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a screaming director. No, cut, cut. I was just like giggling. And, and I couldn't believe what, you, what, you know, what they were you were the fanboy hanging around oh. Jack Nicholson and Joe Pesci, but directing. I'm curious who they changed Jesus to. Oh, well, we came up with, uh, I played that role. There was a guy, you know, when you buy, <laughs> when you buy, um, frames in a store that usually has a photograph of a generic looking person in it so yeah i played i played this generic looking guy in a tuxedo you know kind of standing uh on a slant you know like in some strange pose um mm -hmm. 
and she falls in love with this character who she called the eight by 10 man. It's my eight by 10 man. Um, <laughs> and so I begin to come to life after she shoots herself. Uh, she begins to have delusions that I'm telling her things. And I start telling her to do progressively <laughs> destructive things. And it was a blast. I, I tried to do things musically with it. I tried to do things editorially with it. Uh, I, and, and they let me go a little far. But like I say, I'm a, I'm a horror movie and a movie uh, fan. So I tried to put in, like, I had a Kubrick shot. I had a, I had a, um, what, I tried to do some Jacob's Ladder stuff in it, you know. And, uh, but it was, it, was, it was pretty cool. Check it out. Yeah, if I can find that, I'd like to see it. And Catherine O'Hara, you can't go wrong. Come on, go wrong. What's it like? Um, I mean, you you've approached King uh, and his characters, you know, via you know acting. But like, did you? What was it like approaching it as a writer director? Like, was there anything in you know the prose that stood out to you? Is there anything in in just the the basic text that? like really fired you up in a way that you might not have noticed if you were just taking on a, a role? Well, admittedly, I probably didn't, again, didn't delve as deeply um, as I could have. And this is similar to, I guess, my approach I took when I was doing Jack Torrance. That, you know, since then, I've developed a more uh, serious uh, approach to things, creatively speaking. Uh, I probably was just more enthralled with the idea that I had this opportunity to do it. And um, I, you know, transcribed or uh, as much as what was in the original King story down on paper. Or, uh, Good instinct. Computer. Yeah. 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 You know, just, <laughs> yeah. just do, do what's there uh, as much yeah. as I can. I, I certainly didn't try to embellish it. Um, but, but what was interesting more than what I brought to it was what the actors brought to it. That I was, uh, uh, whatever was on the paper was then um, absorbed by, you know, Catherine O'Hara, John Deal, um, who's an amazing actor too. He was in uh, Stripes and, and Miami Vice, very well known. You'll, once you see his face, you'll know who he is. And they brought so much oh, life yeah. to these characters. That was, I, I, I didn't have to direct. Um, I didn't have to write, you know, I just, like, I just basically, like I say, transferred as much as I could from the story, from the, uh, uh, the short story on t- into a screenplay. And they took it from there. Uh, that was, that was a very cool moment. Uh, kind of a lesson, uh, on how to create with other people, <laughs> especially if you're not an auteur, which I was not. So then, uh, about nine years. So later, then, so uh... then next we <laughs> find our hero. <laughs> Uh, you reunited with uh, Mick Garris for Desperation what's been an interesting byproduct of doing this show is finding out what um, other people's favorite King uh, properties or books are and I've seen like a surprising amount of love for Desperation people people love that book and a lot of people uh, like the miniseries not that that's a, that should be surprising, but it desperation. Surprising. Well, desperation to me is always, it, it's, it, you know, he released that at the same time he released the regulators and that was released under Richard Bachman's name. And, right. you know, it had the same character or same character names, but they were playing different versions of themselves. Right. And it was sort of this experiment. I was always like a regulators guy. 
And so I've been, it's been interesting to see how many people are uh, just really into desperation. I think it's because the uh, desperation isn't afraid to go broad and, and uh, uh, into the ridiculous side of things. And I think that that grabs people, especially people who were, you know, young while they watched it, you know, that they just really appreciate, you know, just how out there that thing goes is, you know, you have your, your main villain falling apart in front of your eyes, you know? Right. Well, you know, it feels like um, uh, desperation is part of the King universe, um, Mm -hmm. which is to say that uh, if you're familiar with the King universe and you're cognizant and appreciative of all the crossovers he does and which I love, um, it really fleshes out, the worlds that he creates. And like I say, it is a King universe. So desperation probably has a lot more meaning um, and associations with people who love the King universe as a standalone movie uh, desperation. I will say with all due respect to everybody involved creatively and technically, I don't think it was successful particularly or necessarily memorable, especially given the the depth and gravity and uh, appeal of so many of other so many other of, of King's works, whether it's The Shining, or The Green Mile, or It, or anything like that, which goes dark and dirty and deep. There's something about Desperation which is more of a uh, amusement park ride, uh, more of a fun, yeah, mm-hmm. almost nod to a bunch of B movie B horror movies, which P.S. I love and always have. Um, almost smashed together you know you have the the crazy world and the mine and the the, the you know the sheriff and uh, there's isn't there a tiger in it or something i mean there's there's so much going on <laughs> in it that that's like a, a an assortment of of fun um horrors in a way and 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 it's very entertaining um i don't think it had the gravity and reach of uh some other uh, adaptations of his work. It certainly was incredibly fun to do it. Uh, amazing actors working with uh, Annabeth Gish and, of course, Ron Perlman and you know Thomas right. Garrett. Charlie Durning was in it, and also the great Matt Frewer, who is also a member of the uh, Mick Garris traveling uh, troupe. <laughs> yeah, trash can man. Yeah. Oh, forget it. And, and I mean, we laughed our <laughs> heads off. He's a genius, this guy, you know. And um, and we shot it in a place called Bisbee, Arizona, which is a mining town that is this kind of hippie, biker, Wiccan, you know, kind of crazy, you know, you know uh, cross between New Age crystals and, you know, weed and, crystal and, <laughs> and guns and meth. Yeah, you know, and, and tie-dye and uh, really kind of worthy of a, of a series of its own in a sense. So it was fun, but you know, it was it was it was a different experience. It was more lighter, I would say. One thing I I really do love about Desperation is it. I think it has one of the best opening hooks of any uh, any King novel, where well, you know the couple me, get, well the well the couple get pulled over by the the sheriff. Oh, that's right. And you know he's there's something you know as the as you keep reading it becomes evident pretty quickly that there's something wrong with this guy. And then oh, once yeah, he's got him yeah. in the car, you know, he's like, I'm going to kill you. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that, that, that inherent fear that I think um, we all have of the police uh, is, is <laughs> yes. a brilliant fucking thing to, right. to, 
as a as a launching pad for for the novel. Mm-hmm. If I remember it correctly, I feel like I feel like the sheriff doesn't last very long in the novel, and I think maybe he sticks around a little longer in the miniseries. I don't know. It's been it's been a while, but um, um, you, you, you know, I mean, you don't want to get rid of Ron Perlman too early. You know, no. I, I think he, he's somebody who you want to you know ring out until there's nothing left because he's, he's, <laughs> he's so great. You know, uh, I ran into that guy once at a uh, South by Southwest. He was in some movie or something that I saw there. Uh, yeah. At the the Alamo Draft House, the the Ritz location, like down on Six, so it's like a, a super busy area, and it's a particularly busy during South by. And I remember I came out of the theater, and there was like this natural sort of open space in the crowd, and I was like, "Is there a fight going on? Did someone break open a pinata? Like, what's going on in the center of that ring?" And it was just fucking Ron Perlman standing there, fucking being a Hellboy, boss. man, Hellboy. Yeah, he is a boss. He is <laughs> like, a boss. He's so yeah. awesome. Uh, he's hilariously funny. Loves his cigars, his golf, his his music, his movies. He's got balls, you know. He's got red devil balls, is what he has. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. yeah no, and I've, he, I've 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 smoked cigars with that dude before on uh, uh, when I was visiting a, a set of one of his movies, and uh, like he, he, that's exactly right. He's just kind of this. He he's a, he, almost like this Don, right? He just kind of sits back and you know exudes this quiet, this yeah, quiet exactly. like power, and then yeah, and yeah. then like whenever he you know will bust out a joke, it's always the funniest, like oh. raunchiest thing you've ever heard. You know, it's like he's, the he's exactly who you want him to be. Yeah. And I think he's amused by himself. I think he's he kind right. of sees the cosmic joke of it all. I mean, that's what I ascribe to it. Um, yeah, he he told me a story. What the hell was it? What was that great movie he was in? Like City of like Lost Men, or it was a French what children, it? yeah. City of Lost Children, right? And and I love those filmmakers. I think they're brothers, uh, and they did Delicatessen, and anyway, uh, the Junot brothers, I think, or something like that. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. so he told me a story. He said, uh, you know, we were it was because uh, he was shooting in France, right? <laughs> and and just to bust, just to bust balls, and it, it's kind of mean, but I it just he did it. I, I, you know, again, to get a rise out of everybody. He said it was the anniversary of the end of World War Two and the anniversary of D-Day. And so we were on the set and I stood up on a box and I said, I'm not working today at all until each one of you shakes my hand and says, thanks. <laughs> and, apparently that, and apparently that's what he did. You know, and, and most, most of them got the joke. Most of them got the joke. But quite a few of them are like, yeah, fuck you, <laughs> American dog. <laughs> I was going to say, the French are notorious for their sense of humor. So, I love the French and France, but this was hilarious. You know, like he, yeah. he was almost parodying American a- arrogance. And uh, they kind yeah. of gave it to him, you know. I'm not going to work until each and every one of you shakes my head. <laughs> I, I have a a, a friend of mine ha, uh, wrote a an episode of a TV uh, anthology that Perlman was in, and he was he like ran into him at some point after working with him at, at like a hotel, and he was like, "Oh, what are you here to do?" He's like, "Ah, uh, some some Uva Bowl piece of shit or something," and, and everybody was like. My friend was said like, well, like, well, if you don't like him, why do you work with him? And he, Perlman just shrugged and goes, what "Can I say my wife likes shoes?" 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, I mean and, and in a way that's part of the that's part of the the cool actor shrugging it off kind of uh, attitude and 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 just talking about myself because god damn it this is my time and I'm going to. Uh I spent too much time kind of nurturing that part of the of 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 uh of my career, the showbiz, the fun part, the bloopers aspect, the hanging out and telling cool right. stories and instead of <laughs> spending more time trying to be a better actor, you know, and try and addressing uh, the reason why I'm here. I'm trying to make these characters work. I'm trying to do the directors follow the uh, people's directions and, and, you know, for the project. But, you know, when the guy who's bigger than life, like, like Ron Perlman, you just got to give him the, give him the space to do that because that's part of the enjoyment too. Uh, not just as an actor, but as an audience member. I love hearing those stories. And the fact that I was able to work with him and get to know him and find out that, yeah, he's the real deal. You know, he's like an authentic Robert Mitchum type. You know, he's... Uh, right. He's out Lee there. Marvin, yeah. Lee Marvin. Another thing oh, I, God. Right. Oh, yeah. Another thing I like about Perlman is he's just fucking relentless on Twitter. Uh, oh, yeah. Going he after Republicans does. and Trump and just... He goes. Oh, man. Not he's afraid. just... No, just constantly talking shit. Yeah. Like, yeah. and 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 so are you, uh, Stephen. Which you know, I, I appreciate that. I, I feel like we're in this we're in this spot right now where there's just shit we can't change, and everyone is fucking true. furious. And so it's That's like true. all you can really do, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, to sort of blow off some sort of steam about how angry you are is just talk shit and drag these idiots yeah. and you know, look, it accomplishes it, 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 very little, but it's so satisfying. So uh, that, well then, you know, I think you actually just defined it uh, appropriately. You know, it, it's, we're talking shit, we're dragging people, but it just, it's a way of letting off steam. I, I wish uh, words, especially the, in the Twitter, uh, Twitter verse, which I think is basically, a rage aggregator. Uh, I'm not sure if it <laughs> does anything. Uh, you know, I get a lot of my news from the variety of sources uh, that, of course, appeal to my you know philosophical uh, leanings. But um, hey, I'm Twitter sure. got you on the show. Yeah, that's, uh, true. that's right. That's right. You oh, so that, that's a little. That's right. That's yeah, right. I know. No, no, no. Well, look. In in many respects, it's like a um, it's a town square, a virtual town square, a virtual marketplace. And I stroll through it, and, and as, as you do, as everybody does, and sometimes you run into cool people, sometimes you run into bullies and monsters uh, and assholes, and, but I realized that if it was a literal town square, I probably would go at different times of the day, if at all, because there's too many uh, bullies and monsters and assholes out there, so... Uh, um, but it's, it's also addictive, it's also... I, it'd be interesting to see in maybe another generation, how Twitter can be assessed, you know, from, from a, uh, a vantage point of, of having uh, time pass because uh, we're mm-hmm. all immersed in it. It's really, all I know is that when I'm on it, I, I feel like I'm letting off steam, but I feel like shit. So it's like a drug. It's like alcohol. And when I'm a day and if I stay away for a few days, I feel a lot better. <laughs> oh yeah. And maybe, maybe there's something to be said for that. A couple of months ago, I was going through like sort of a rough patch and, you know, that was being exacerbated by being on Twitter. And so I was like, I'm just going to I'm just going to fucking walk away from this and sort of get my head straight for a minute. And I think I was off of it for two or three weeks. 
And what was incredible was when I came back, everything was as it was. But by that point, (laughs) it was like looking at the feed was like being dipped into a well of poison. You know, Uh, it's like there's so much anger and there's like everything, even jokes are so fucking bitter and vicious. You know, it's um, it's some of the funniest shit I've ever seen in my life has happened on Twitter. You know, um, oh, and a lot of those jokes were, were mean spirited, but it's, uh, man, it is, it is real. I think it's doing something to our, our brains and our, uh, just constitutions as people that I don't think we even have begun to see like the full picture of yet. There'll, there'll come great. a point where we realize like, oh, social, we shouldn't have done that. That, that was, yeah. uh. Well, yeah, was I, I was off it. I was off it myself for about five years, and um, precisely because I, I had realized that uh, I was getting easy affirmation without having a full experience. Um, it's an approximation of social interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, totally. It, and so I don't think it's good uh, in the end. Um, it's another marketplace. Not. It, it, it's about transactional experiences um and it's it's an example for me of technology not helping humanity uh, i mean a, a, a dumb example of what i mean by that is you know a bunch of years ago when i walked onto a sound stage and saw i guess my first digital movie camera uh mounted on a jib arm on a, a dolly and my friend said, look at this. It's incredible. I said, yeah, my God, you know, it could do everything. It, you don't need to reload it. You don't need, and anybody can carry it around. And it's fantastic. Oh, no, eight people just lost their jobs. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and so that's the downside in a way of technology. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not a brain box, but this is what I observe, that, that there's so much that gives us ease uh, hell, I you know I buy things on Amazon all the time, and I Postmates meals out here, you know, in Los Angeles. Totally, uh, and that's great. But there's something missing in the in the tactile nature of of relating to each other. There's something that technology is always trying to approximate, but that will never get as good as what we already have. I mean, there's a part of me like uh, I've been. I've been getting mental about the idea that the United States Postal Service is in danger of really being subsumed. It's so so fucking crazy. It's fucking crazy. Now, is it an imperfect uh, profit model? Yeah, has been, I guess, for, you know, uh, 150, 200 years or whatever it is. But (laughs) it employs people. It's one of the last things that uh, still ensures that human touch, even in the age of coronavirus is uh, an essential element at being alive, at uh, remaining a coherent nation. I feel like technology and Twitter and all those platforms, excuse me, I just belched bourbon. I feel like that type of thing is has what's been exploited in our political system. People are not involved. Yes, they are getting up and out of their chairs and onto the streets now, which I think is essential. But before that, what allowed the ghost into the uh, machinery is the fact that people could just push a button and not give a shit and invent their spleen and then turn it off rather than confront things in real time in real space and deal with consequences. Yeah, apathy. 
Yeah. Apathy. And so I'm announcing my candidacy for Comptroller. Comptroller. <laughs> Steve Stephen Weber for Comptroller. Comptroller. <laughs> if you can if you can spell it, you can be it. I think it's a good this is a good spot to move on to um you know they got a hell of a band real quick before we, yes. oh, sure. we dive into the the finale. <laughs> um uh that is such a great concept. Because the whole setup is like somebody's on a road trip, right? Or they're they're yeah. on a long drive and they stumble across a town that has all the the rockers who have died young there, right? And then yeah. of course there's more to it, you know, underneath all that. But uh, but just you know, instantly the idea of like showing up in a town and Roy Orbison and Elvis and uh, Jimi Hendrix and you know all these rock gods are there. How did you get get into? Uh, that one. What what was your your story for that? Ah, I mean, uh, I think it came to me. I think um, Nightmares and Dreamscapes was, uh, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. It, it, that, yeah, that was that's specifically um, Stephen King based anthology series, right? It wasn't just this, right. Correct. Yeah. So it was all, all uh, King short stories. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So look, I mean, by this time, I had established my King bona fides. <laughs> and and the call came to me you know it was a a role that uh, i guess i had been doing uh which was um affable but uh vulnerable to evil kind of straight guy <laughs> husband yeah. uh a, a few years later i would transition into douchebag in a suit which i then played for, you know, <laughs> ten goddamn years. Uh, but before that i was just affable kind of fucked up guy and it came my way, and it actually shot in Melbourne, Australia, uh, which was doubling for, of all things, Oregon. Don't tell me. Uh, I have no idea what the tax break, the tax incentive no must shit. have been, but it must have been substantial. So uh, I was basically uh, you know, hung over from the travel for almost the duration of the entire shoot. By the time I got over my jet lag, we had to go back home. But yeah, it was a cool story. And they did a great job, certainly in terms of getting people that looked a lot like um, like these rock icons. I mean, Billy McNamara, William McNamara, looked just like Ricky Nelson. Uh, yeah. Fantastic actors who looked just like Janis Joplin, you know. And, oh, and and the guy that played Elvis Presley in it, who is Katie Segal's brother, Joey. Okay, and um, no shit. Swear to God, and. <laughs> apparently was known around town for doing Elvis. So uh, he was really good. Yeah. How about that? You know, Roy Orbison. Yeah. So it was a blast. It was a lot of fun. And it was in a sense, kind of the, the lighter, one of the lighter King stories. Again, another, it was almost the equivalent of a, of a sideshow in an amusement park. You know, let's go into this one. That one, that one's just a total like EC comics tales from the crypt ah, sort of, absolutely. you know, EC. story. Yeah. It's right. the classic setup of like the couple on a road trip and they get lost in a town. Was that, was all that shit, the, the town, was that all a set or was that yeah. a location? No, they wow. built this set. And maybe that's why they went to Australia. Maybe it was just, I, I, you know, like everything's about money at the end of the day when you're making a film. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, they built that entire set from scratch and, uh, <laughs> that was it. Again, I was jet lagged. So it, it, when you're jet lagged after flying to Australia, you just feel like you're covered in one of those heavy blankets for the whole time. It's weird that Nightmare that that whole series, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, I feel like sort of 
came in under the radar. Like I still yeah. talk to people now that are, are King fans that don't even know it existed. And there's some, there's some good shit in that, uh, uh, series. Um, yeah, I, I don't doubt it. Look, uh, there was another series that I did with Mick. Um, that was all great directors. You know, I did a, I did an adaptation of a, of this horror comic called, uh, Jennifer, uh, called, and the, the series is called masters of horror. And so, right. uh, yeah. and, and it was great. Uh, I, I don't know. I think maybe it was because maybe, uh, nightmares and dreamscapes was under the radar a bit because I'm making this up. Could, could be wrong. Is that people's viewing habits were starting to change, you know, vis-a-vis, again, technology and streaming and the cable and whatever it was back then. And, and, and so people had different choices. They weren't, you know, you didn't have to show up to watch the series, you know, the way there were only four mm-hmm. channels or three channels. Everybody was there or the majority of people just showed up and put it on. Uh, you know, and you realize that there's a lot of niche viewing tastes and habits. and. Stephen King, for as universally uh, appealing as he is and, uh, and famous, you know, is not everybody's cup of tea, nor is horror, nor is fantasy. And I, I could even extrapolate by saying that people are getting way more horrifying things on the Internet, you know, just by, <laughs> you know, just by cruising around and, and web surfing than they could ever get in any scripted or written tale. Well, if any of our listeners haven't haven't seen it, I would I would go to I I think the whole thing is on Prime, but you got to pay to rent per episode or something. Um, I would recommend the the episode you did is good. The the season premiere, which is uh, Battleground, which is an hour long. It has no dialogue in it. Brian Henson, who's Jim Henson's son, directed it. And it's got William Hurt as like a hitman who's fucking. It, like in this big penthouse apartment going to war with like, you know, those little green army men. It's oh, fucking yeah. bananas. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. somebody, uh, somebody who's wants to be on the show at, at some point was pitching battleground as an episode. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I, uh, let me go back and watch it. And, uh, <laughs> and I went back and watched it and was just blown away by it. It's yeah, so yeah, fucking yeah. good. Like way oh, better good. than I remembered. Oh, um, your episode was good. I also liked uh, the road virus heads north. That episode's good. Uh, I, you know what? I only saw my own episode and then barely. <laughs> <laughs> Still jet lagged. Uh, Still jet. I'm jet lagged to this day. <laughs> well, we'll go. We'll definitely seek out battleground. And also the one with William H. Macy is really good. I'm going to Yeah. Cave. All right. If you say so. Never heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> no idea. Some just a guy. Very recently, I think it was timed out for around the time that the uh, first of Andy Muschietti's uh, It movies came out. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you narrated the uh, a new version of the It audiobook, which is fantastic. Thank you. Uh, we have not covered King audiobooks much on this show so far, which is which is a shame because both Eric and I listen to them. Um, there's some truly stellar work in in that like world. I'm I'm sort of curious about the process of it. Like, do you just go, you like legit, just go sit in a recording booth and read until you fuck up. And then you got to like start over the paragraph or like, (laughs) how does it work? Not unlike doing, not unlike doing this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We never fuck up here. Never fuck up here. Um, (laughs) That you should put under like under the podcast title. We never fuck up here. Um, Never once. Yeah. You sit in a booth. 
um, or back in the day pre-COVID, you know, in a in a in a sound booth or a studio, but it's usually a small, um, arguably confining space, and uh, you have a usually just have an engineer uh, who goes along the text with you. Uh, sometimes you'll actually have an engineer and a director. In fact, the last Stephen King story I did was called Rat uh, in an anthology series. Uh, yes. If it bleeds. And, uh, a great, yeah, a, a great short story. Yeah. And they are fun to do and captivating, and not least because you get paid to read. Uh, not a terribly uh, large sum, but still, you're getting paid to read uh, mostly great stuff. And it uh, came my way again, the same way that um, the Stephen King projects started to, uh, which was because I had a developing association with him. And You were um, in the family. I was in the family and they had a decent enough, uh, you know, response to, to whatever I was doing in the in, in universe. And so it came my way. I had done a few audiobooks before that, uh, but this was a big one. Um, it was, yeah. Uh, yeah, like 1200 yeah, pages. Yeah, you were aware when you, when you signed, yeah, signed up for this, the, it was approximately a 4 million page book, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and look, the thing is that I, again, I'm an actor. I like to work and, uh, yeah. And also, I love the whole aesthetic of of um, audiobooks and wearing headphones and sitting in front of a pill microphone, or you know, it, it's all those things that that I always loved about show business, and uh, was finally able to achieve. So yeah, I did this in a, a studio um, outside of Los Angeles, and um, uh, it was a kind of a redefining experience for me because I was able to do the things that I complained about earlier in the podcast, not having been able to do as a younger actor. I was able to, you know, say in The Shining, I was able to go deep and uh, go without restriction into this very deep, very unrestricted world of this particular story, it. You know, it's everybody remembers the clown. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows the, the nightmarish imagery. It's also also deeply psychological. It's disturbingly sexual. It's very adult, man. It, and so I was able to kind of let loose, and I was encouraged to do so uh, by the director. Do you reach a point in that where like 30 pages in, you're like, fuck, I've got like 970 well, more pages to go? <laughs> yeah, sometimes, because I, I, there's also a part of it that is just a job, and you say like, oh, I want to get home. I want to get home uh, today. Uh, but it always pays off if I if I go deeper. And like I say, this material allowed me to go deeper in spite of the the length, the the daunting length. It took two weeks. Two I weeks was going like to say. Seven-hour days, yeah. And uh, and also, and the thing is that I didn't pre-read it. I just, I mean, I, I was aware of the story through the, by then, uh, old uh, TV uh, miniseries version of it, which is still kind of cool. Um, a lot of it works. A lot of it is dated. Um, certainly Tim Curry's Pennywise is absolutely iconic and uh, still extremely disturbing, man. And, uh, oh, like, uh, I just, I'm just going to digress one second. You know, I'm also a Star Trek original series guy, and uh, I love that show. It's like comfort food. I watch them all the time. I can recite reams of dialogue. And one of the ones I watched had an actor in it and it was called the, well, the episode was journey to Babel, journey to Babel. And in it was, um, this fantastic actor who played an alien in it, 
who also played the vampire in Salem's Lot. Okay, and um, he's so frightening looking. He played one of the uh, Andorians, you know, one of the blue people with the antennas. I'm probably pulling yeah. the shit out of you. No. Um, oh, his name is Reggie Nalder. Okay, and Reggie Nalder played the the Nosferatu like vampire in uh, Salem's Lot. Anyway, blah blah fuckity blah. Um, I did, um, you know, I did it. The audiobook. Ugh. <laughs> there i just that's me giving up and running out of steam oh <laughs> my wife and i listened to that uh, leading up to i i already told steven this in email but we listened to the audiobook uh before the first movie came out she had not read the book and i was kind of wanting to revisit but i didn't want the chore of actually reading it so i was like yeah hey, we'll fucking have someone read it to us and so we got that one i remember as we were listening to it like repeatedly being like he's really fucking good at this like he's you know this is a great read and um and and then we got to uh uh pretty close to the end and then the uh sewer gangbang happened and she was right out (laughs) she was like i'm done well yeah you know look you gotta ask yourself what that is and and if you're gonna if you're gonna be in the stephen king universe you know you have to kind of accept it as this difficult and aberrant uh, uh, thing that goes on, yeah. and I, I, it'd be, I'd love to hear him talk more about it because it's, it's fascinating. I have to say one thing that um, um, I know, I got to know Bill Hader uh, a little bit, and um, oh wow, and we we're talking, and uh, and he, and uh, he was talking about the about the it that he was in the second part, and he, he said that um, in preparation. He, uh, the director told all the actors to listen to my audio version of it. Huh. And nice. I, it was, I was so flattered, you know, I mean, uh, I, I don't know wh- whatever you think about the, the two it movies, which I think were fantastic. Yeah, uh, actually, uh, I, I felt so good hearing that because there's a part of me that obviously is in desperate need of affirmation, especially from my peers, <laughs> my peers. And so that was a moment where I felt affirmed you know that i actually contributed to some other creative person's process um, that was a really good uh, moment uh, but no less hearing you describe you know how you and your wife listen of to course. it I, i've gotten a lot of um really positive feedback about that particular um audiobook and it's won a couple of awards so it's the gift that keeps well, on I giving mean- you you actually perform it, and for, I've only listened to uh, a chunk of it because I reread it fairly recently. Uh, but I, you know, prep for this, I wanted to to you know hear a little bit of it, so I pulled up Audible and you know and and got it. But what struck me in the passages that I heard was that you were actively performing it. It wasn't just a dry read, and I've heard those. Um, there's another one like I'm I'm listening to Dolores Claiborne now, and that uh, for a future episode and. Francis Sternhagen is reading that one and she is doing something very similar to you is like, she's performing it. I don't, it almost feels like a, a radio play versus just having somebody, mm-hmm. you know, dryly read you the, right. you know, the words on the page. Right. I almost mentioned this earlier because uh, Stephen mentioned uh, Tim Curry, Tim Curry read uh, crouch end in the nightmares and dreamscapes audiobook. Mm. You know, they have like mm. different, different people like yearly Smith reads uh rainy yeah. season and fucking, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but Curry's performance on Crouch End is like when I think of all-time great audiobook performances, that one is just 
bonkers. Like he leaves nothing, nothing off the table. He's it's, it's great. People that perform versus just reading, you know, that's, you know, also look, you got to give Stephen King credit in this case. You know, he writes uh, fully fleshed out characters and fantastic meaty dialogue. And it would be a great loss if it was just recited, you know, like as though yeah. some procedural, you know, and there are plenty of books that do that. Uh, but he doesn't write just to tell a story. He invites you to live the story with him. And, uh, and look, it's incumbent upon actors or narrators to, to give as much as they can. And oh, one, one other thing, talking about Tim Curry, I mean, we all know how great he is, but Actors are trained to be as versatile as possible, to go as deep as possible, yeah. ideally. You know. Oh, there's my dog. My goddamn dog. Hold on. King Cat. That's oh, yeah, right. Uh, somebody, uh, all right. Well, I got it. I got it. Don't, don't worry, guys. Shut up, I said! Uh, it's uh, very soothing. The dog bark. Uh, hold on one second. Here, I'm going to talk on my ring here. Hello? Hello, sir. Hi, yes. Could, could you leave that in the mailbox, please? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Eric, we're leaving all of that in. Yeah, leave it in. Leave it in, because it shows that I'm a human being, too. Okay, hold a, on. A man of the people. Salty yes. Cat, stop it! Stop barking! I'm doing a, a podcast that dozens of people are listening to. Come back here! <laughs> he can read out loud. He has pets come on, come on. and a mailbox. Yep. A perfect candidate for Comptroller. <laughs> C? C O M P. I put the C in Comptroller. <laughs> well, I think that about brings us to the end of your 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 run in the world of uh Stephen King, but uh well, I'm curious if there are run any in the world. No, <laughs> no, well, hopefully not. The run of the uh, world. <laughs> But uh, I'm curious if there are any King properties you would like to take a crack at, either, either as oh, brother. you know, acting in them or directing them. Or... Uh, you know, I mean, the funny thing is that um, it'd be interesting. In fact, this short story, Rat, that I just uh, read, uh, would mm-hmm. be a great episode of, yeah, an anthology series. It doesn't have to be an anthology series devoted to King stuff, but just to fantasy and horror and like i say uh i'm, I'm at a, the stage of my life where i have a greater understanding of, of you know the nuances of of, of characters and, and, and having lived some life um so this would be a great um story which is not about a guy seeing a rat scary rat who speaks to him it's about writer's block you know it's about it's about those things and now that i understand what uh, these things mean more. I'd love to take a crack at that. But look, I'm a, I'm a journeyman actor. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to do a lot of stuff um, in all genres. Um, and as a horror nerd uh, who grew up reading uh, famous monsters and creepy and eerie and all those things and watching great B-movies and universal horror films, I I love working in this world. And so um, hopefully... You know, maybe maybe King will do another series. Uh, I hate to tell you, but Ben Stiller just bought the rights to that and turning it into a movie. What? What? So, uh, what? What? Bought the rights to what? Rat. rat? Oh, yeah. Doctor, well, okay. Well, he he's okay. Uh, uh, he's <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll let him do that. <laughs> That's fine. Man. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Uh, yeah. I'll I'll allow it this time. Yeah, I I think he's directing, but 
I don't know. Well, I want you to remake your Outer Limits episode and bring back Catherine O'Hara again, but uh, but yeah. actually have Jesus in the picture this time. Ah, and well, you can play Jesus it. if you want. I, I mean, like a like like a, a middle aged Jesus. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the right, the world is ready for a mischievous sort of, you know, mischievous. <laughs> well, look, you know what? If you can hunt down um, that that episode, Revelations of Becca Paulson, I think it's worth it. There's some of it that's really kind of good in it, uh, and we I had a lot of fun. And you'll see these actors, um, and there's humor in it. We definitely injected humor into the story. So check it out. Yeah. I will. I wish. I wish I had known about that before we did our uh, Tommy Knockers episode. Oh, it's okay. You faked your way through it beautifully. I, that's, that's what they <laughs> yeah. tell me. Yes. Yeah. Sto- story of our lives. Well, thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, uh, love talking about this stuff. And uh, if uh, if we live beyond twenty twenty one, we can uh, revisit. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You got a date, man. Please feel free to come back to do a, a regular episode if there's any particular adaptation you want to talk about. This was uh, uh, this no. is a blast. <laughs> no, uh, that's it. That's it. Well, we'll we'll set you aside for Ben Stiller's rat whenever that comes. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. In fact, for angry commentary. <laughs> yes. That's not how I would have done it. I would have done it like this. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, thanks. Thanks again. Yes. Thank, thank you, you, sir. Thank you, guys.